Bill Briscoe writes, we can worry or we can worship. These are mutually exclusive actions, worry and worship. We can consume ourselves with the depths of depravity of this world and of ourselves. We can consume ourselves with the brokenness and evil that resides within our heart. We can consume, we can intake the worries and anxieties of the current crisis of this world. But don't you worry. When this crisis is over, there'll be another crisis. And you can worry about that as well. And if not, there's not another crisis, I'm sure your hearts will be able to fabricate one for you to worry about. We can consume, we can feed ourselves, we can intake with worry about economic devastation, the response to this virus that has with our economy. We can consume and intake and feed ourselves with the, the infectiousness of the, the mutating ways in which this virus is acting and behaving in this world right now and on our bodies. We can consume ourselves with worry and anxiety. We consume fear. We consume hopelessness. We consume doubt and anger. We consume bitterness and sin. We consume death and we consume this world. We consume and we are troubled. Troubled and saddened souls. This is garbage in and garbage out. What we put in is what we give out. You are what you consume. We can worry or we can worship. Realize this truth. Our perspective or our worry of death prohibits our worship with God. It prohibits our love of God. Or, or there is a choice. Or, or we can decide not to consume those things. We can decide not to consume worry. Or, or. Author and priest uh, W. Paul Jones writes this. What one sees depends on where one sits upon, one sets up one's shop. Mind is at the entrance of the empty tomb. What we consume depends on where we set up our shop. What we consume depends on where we, we review the world around us. What we consume depends on what side of the cross that you decide to reside on. Where do you live, move, and have your being? What side of the cross? Do you wallow in Good Friday and in that sacrifice, in death, or you do you see life through the new lens of the resurrection, the abundant forever eyes of our Savior, Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus reside on the wrong side of the cross. Where do you reside? Where is your hope? What side of the cross? In our sermon series that the real last words of Christ what we're here to discover in the words of Jesus after the resurrection, his, his true last words to us on earth. The first word we heard was a word to the seeker. Whom are you seeking? And Jesus renews and redirects and re, uh, direct our pursuits in him. 
And the second week, we, we heard a word for the fearful, and Jesus said, do not be afraid. The one who we ought to be fearful of tells us there is no condemnation. Do not be afraid. And last week, we heard a word for the restless. Jesus declared, peace be with you. This, this reconciling relationship kind of peace. This deep residing comfort, restful peace. And Jesus institutes this in the resurrection. It's accomplished and made available at the cross, but given in the resurrection. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus gives a word to the troubled in heart. He gives a word to us. In Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Two disciples walking, presumably home or leaving Jerusalem, leaving the rest of the disciples. It is the the third day. It is the day of the resurrection. On verse 18, we know that one of them, the disciples, is named uh, Cleopas. The other isn't named in this story. But we do know that Cleopas had a wife, Mary. And Mary was a disciple. In John 19, 24, we actually hear about her. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, which is just a variant spelling of Clepas. There it is. Mary and Mary Magdalene. We don't know for sure if it was Clepas and his wife walking to Emmaus, but we do know, we could probably presume that if, there were leaving, if he was leaving Jerusalem, he would be taking his wife with them. And it wouldn't be unusual that his wife wouldn't be named. So it is a good assumption that Cleopas is walking home with his wife, abandoning the rest of his disciples. As they were talking about the events that unfolded the past few days, Jesus appears to them, and they do not recognize him. In fact, it explicitly says their eyes were hidden from seeing him. It's not necessarily that Jesus was unrecognizable, but their eyes were blinded. They were spiritually blinded. Their eyes fixed and focused on something else. Their eyes fixed and focused on somewhere else. They were consuming the world. They were consuming death. They were on the wrong side of the cross. And Jesus asked what they're talking about. Now make no mistake, Jesus knows what they're talking about. He knows, but he asks, what is, this, what is this conversation that you're having as you, as you walk? And that question stops them in their track. And upon their face, you could see it. It's sullen, it's sad, it's troubled, it's gloomy. They were grieved and deeply disturbed, troubled in heart. Other disciples later on, Jesus addressed just after this passage, in Luke 24, 38, it says, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why are you sad and gloomy? Why are you downcast? I can see it upon you. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
Then notice how they respond and speak about Jesus. Luke 24, 18-24. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happen there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Did you hear it? Was a prophet. First of all, they don't even know who Jesus is. A prophet? A mere messenger of God? Surely he was a messenger of God. But that is not all he was. That is not why he died on a cross. He died on a cross because he claimed to be God. That's why they wanted him dead. He didn't claim to just to be a prophet, a messenger of God. He claimed to be God himself. They are sad. They are sullen in their face. And that word that is that word that is sad or deeply troubled in their heart, which is expressed on their face, is actually the same word that is used for Jesus when he's resurrecting Lazarus. In John eleven thirty three, you can remember when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Why was he troubled? Now, at the beginning of the story of Lazarus, we know that he delays to go and see Lazarus when they told him he's sick and dying. And then when he does go, they told him, oh, he's dead, Jesus, don't worry. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He's not dead. In fact, I'm delaying to go to him so, so you can see the glory of God. So you can see. He's not dead, and I've done what I've done so you can see God's glory. And then when they get there, they're all grieved over Lazarus. And just before this encounter where he's deeply troubled in his heart, right? he tells Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes. And yet there's still grief in their heart. They don't know who they're with. They think it's just a prophet. Maybe the Messiah, but surely not God. And Jesus is as angered and grief, deeply troubled, deeply grieved. And of course, then he resurrects Lazarus. And then they said, it's not just he was a prophet. Did you hear? It's was. It's past tense. Jesus was. He is no longer. Jesus is dead. They are on the wrong side of the cross. In verse 20, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered Him up to be condemned to death and crucified Him, but we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Did you hear it again? They had hoped. Past tense. They no longer hope. They no longer reside on hope. They're still at the foot of the cross. Jesus is dead. He is grew. We had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to, going to do this uprising and, and get Rome out and, then, and kick this half king that we have out and to establish Israel on earth. We had hoped that. But now he's dead. 
How have you given up on your hope? How is your hope in the past tense? Is, I mean, is your hope in Jesus in the past tense when, when hard times hit, when circumstances happen, when difficult things go on in your life? Is it, I hoped. There was hope. Or are eyes fixed on Jesus? The one who is alive. The one who has conquered death. Your hope is present tense. Your hope is future tense. Jesus, see, he knew there was something worse than, than this enslavement by Rome. He knew that people were enslaved by sin inside their heart. And this is what he's come to overcome. Death and sin, this is what he's overcome. The same thing that Cleopas and his wife and other disciples were consuming right now. Death and sin. And then verse 22 goes on. Moreover, they say, Moreover, more, beyond just this that we had hoped that he's, he's dead now. Listen to what they say. Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And yet they're still referring to him as dead. And some of those who were went with us who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Just think about what the, what's going on here. right? Not only was Mary, Cleopas' wife, she was at the foot of the cross. She was there. She saw what happened. But they heard direct testimony from the woman that visited the tomb just this morning. Right? They're Later on the day, they're leaving, they're going to Emmaus. They heard the testimony of the woman that the tomb was empty, that the women saw angels, and that those angels said that Jesus was alive and he is risen and will greet them. They heard that testimony. They also heard the testimony of Peter and some of the other disciples that went to check what the women said, and they found the tomb was empty as well. They heard all that direct testimony. And here it is, Jesus, right in their presence, and they still can't recognize him. All of that testimony, even the presence of Jesus, and they still are in the past. They still are at the cross. And they heard, they heard the pre-cross teachings of Jesus, the predictions of Jesus that said he would die. And on the third day, which it is, they already said it, this is the third day that he would be resurrected. They heard this. They saw the cross. They heard the direct testimonies that he body wasn't there. And it's not that they think he's resurrected. They think that he's dead, that he was, that he's just a prophet. What is their response to all of that? They leave. They go home. They head back home to be in great despair and visible sadness. They had the physically resurrected Jesus in front of them, and that still did not change their perspective. It still did not change their state of mind. They still stood on the wrong side of the cross and consumed death. What would convince them 
of the resurrection. What would convince them that Jesus was alive? If the presence of the risen Jesus wasn't enough, what would convince you? We stand at the foot of the cross, you and I stand at the foot of the cross, consuming death and despair every day. We consume worry and we avoid worship, at least rightful worship. We've heard, you and I have heard the testimony of the woman. You just read it this morning. We've heard the eyewitnesses and we've read the eyewitnesses of the testimony of the apostles. We open up the New Testament. We've heard the testimony. We have heard and rest and even, we even profess the resurrection. Jesus is alive. We say it. And most of us have experienced dramatic change in our life. A resurrected life that's different. That's not the same. And yet, with all that testimony, with all that truth, with all those experiences, we still turn from God. We turn from the truth. And we turn from worship and we go to worry. We consume death. We consume fear and we consume hopelessness. Worse than that, we actually spread it. We spread it. We testify to fear. We testify to hopelessness. And we instill it in others. What would convince you that Jesus is alive? What convinces us? What moves you back from worry to worship? What puts you on the resurrection side of the cross? Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They still do not recognize Jesus. And Jesus speaks, I think, a gentle rebuke to them, foolish ones, ones that pursue death, ones that are on the wrong side of the cross. You are so slow to believe. Your heart is so blind. I'm right in front of you and you still don't recognize me. And he repeats what he's already spoken to them. Luke 9.22, things that he spoke to them way before him. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and a third day raised. I mean, this is almost the exact same thing that they just told him on the road. This is what he said to us. And Jesus continues to walk with them and teaches them. He opens up and teaches and interprets all of Scripture from Moses to the prophets. That's just a, a nice way of saying from the beginning to the end. He opened up all of Scripture and in this walk, which must have been a long walk, he began to say, all these things are about me. How all these things are actually pointers to me. How all these things are actually shadows of who I am and are pointing to what I am doing right now. This must have taken time, patience, and love. 
This is, this is Jesus' word. We know that all things point to him, right? 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Everything that has been, that is, and always will be points to Jesus. He does the same thing later on for the rest of the disciples. He goes through all of Scripture. Luke 24, verses 44-48. And then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. All of Scripture. He takes the time to point Cleopas and his wife and then to the rest of the disciples and then to you and I. What convinces us of the resurrection? What moves us from one side of the cross to the other? What moves us from death to life? What moves us from worry to worship? It's not miracles. It's not healing. It's not God's daily provision for us. It isn't the testimony of people. It isn't the testimony. It isn't kind advice and good advice. What moves us is the word of our Lord and Savior. It is the ministry of the Word of God that moves us from worry to worship, from death to life. Let Him move you from worry to worship this morning. Learn from Him. Listen to Him. Open up His Word. Don't be looking for a new insight or a new word. Open up the old word. Read it again. He has spoken the Word of God, the Scriptures. One of my favorite quotes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in, in chapter 1, I think paragraph 3 or 5. We are completely persuaded and assured of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible only by the inward working of the Holy Spirit who testifies by and with. By and with the Word in our hearts. There it is. Jesus and His Spirit testifying to Cleopas and Mary by and with His Word. Nothing else convinces them, but their eyes are opened up. Their hearts are opened up by and with the Word. Likewise, we only believe and live with Christ. We're only present with Him when the inward working of His Holy Spirit, which He gives to us, uses this Word of God, uses His Word of God to reveal Jesus, to reveal the truth of the resurrection to us. Cleopas and his wife and the disciples stood in his midst, and not until it was revealed with them in the Scripture did they believe. Not until Jesus opened up His Word did they move from worry to worship, from death to life. Romans 10.17 says this, So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Period. 
If anyone to have faith, is anyone to have trust in God, and anyone actually then to move to worship of God, it must come from hearing of the word of God. Come from Scripture. Faith doesn't come from seeing. It doesn't come from, from hearing from eyewitnesses. Many people were healed by Jesus. And not all of them believed. Faith, life, proper worship comes from hearing from the Word of Christ. And this is what happens on the road to Emmaus. Jesus opened their hearts and their eyes to Him through the Word of God. The apostles understood this truth. The apostles understood the truth after Jesus explained it to them. And when needs and issues arose in the early church, in the early community, that they needed to rest, real needs, important needs, they appointed deacons, as other people, to rise up because they knew they could not neglect the ministry of the Word of God. Acts 6, 2-4. And when the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom you will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They understood that you couldn't just feed people. You can't just take care of their needs because their real need is the word of God. Man should not live by bread alone, Jesus says. These things are important, but the real need that we should never neglect is the proclamation of the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God. And that is not reserved for me. That is reserved for all of us to proclaim the ministry of the Word of God. Acts 17, 2-3, and Paul went in as was his custom on the third, Three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Opened up the Scriptures and began to explain it to them. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He does it through Scripture. As I teach and I preach, I don't just include a lot of Scripture just to show how... uh, much I can use a, uh, a thesaurus and use my Bible software to pull out lots of references. No. I don't still choose to try to prove my point. No. I am called, as you are called, to this precious ministry of the Word. Because I know it is not me. It is the Word of God that changes hearts. The Word of God that is read, taught, properly proclaimed, and preached changes hearts through the inward working of the Holy Spirit. God opens the hearts and minds of us. I don't want people to see me. I don't want people to hear me. I want people to hear and see Jesus through Scripture. I want you. I want me. I want others to move from death to life. I want to move from the wrong side of the cross daily. I want to I move from life and, uh, and I want to move into to light and freedom instead of death. I want to be a person of worship, not worry. I know our hearts are prone to wander as we just sung. I know that we are prone to leave the God in which we state that we love and that we do love, but our hearts are fickle. And we'll leave. 
and will wander. But God uses His Word to bring us back. God and God alone uses His Word. We ought to be people that treasure and dwell in this Word in which God uses. This creative Word that God uses. This authoritative Word which God uses because He is the authority. And we ought to be eager to hear it and be in it. Colossians 3.16, we read this passage last week. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you wander into fear. Repent. Go the other way. Open up and dwell. As you wander into hopelessness, repent, turn, and go the way. Open up the Scriptures and dwell in them. As you wander into doubt, repent, open up your Bible and dwell in it. As you wander into anger, open up and dwell. As you wander into bitterness and sin, stop where you are, repent, and open up the Scriptures and dwell in them. Dwell with your Lord. As you wander and treasure the things of this world, repent and open up the treasure of the Word of God and change from the cross, the wrong side of the cross, to the resurrection. As you wander on this earth, Always treasure His Word. We will wander. And when you do, return, repent, and get back to His Word. The Word that God has entrusted in you. The Word that God has implanted in you. That Word that will set your hearts on fire. That will burn within. That will open up your eyes for the first time and see the ever-present Jesus right in front of you. Troubled souls, saddened and grieved and exhausted friends. Drink from the fountain that gives you life. Let your hearts burn for Jesus and open up His Word. Let the Word of Christ move us from worry to worship. Amen.